Y'all, if we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. We have a very simple mission to inspire non-religious people, skeptical people, really, to follow Jesus, or at least to consider him. Um, and, and that's our mission. That's why we exist. And so if you're one of those folks that probably wouldn't be here today if someone in your family or someone you're close to hadn't coerced you or promised you brunch or <laughs> if they hadn't forced you, uh, you're, the, you're the reason we're here. I'm so especially excited that you're here. The last time we did this, the last time we gathered in person together, it was on Easter Sunday, it was 2019. Can y'all, can y'all think with me how much the world has changed since we last did this together on Easter Sunday morning? The, the world was a whole different place in 2019. I mean, just two years ago, the <laughs> for example, the Astros were still known for banging baseballs instead of trash cans. <laughs> and uh, the Texans had a bright future with a core of talent. J.J. Watt, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, remember him? Young franchise quarterback. And, and so much of that is up, up for questioning. And nobody knows what the future holds for the Texans. It wasn't that way two years ago. A lot can change in a couple of years. Last time we gathered on Easter Sunday morning, Harry and Meghan were still part of the royal family. Jeffrey Epstein still hadn't killed himself in prison, and, and uh, no one had even thought to dress up like a woolly mammoth and invade the Capitol building. No one even thought of it the last time we gathered for Easter. So much has changed in our world. And of course, none of us had ever heard of this thing called the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, and our reaction to it have reshaped our whole lives and continue to re havoc on our lives today. You know, the last time we gathered for Easter, you know, nobody even knew what Zoom was. And social distancing was something you did when your ex showed up at the same party as you. <laughs> like, it was a much simpler time back then than it is today. And as I look back on everything that, that we've been through, I see just this one common denominator called fear that I want to talk about today. And I want to compare fear to the utter joy and freedom we find in Christ. And I was thinking this week about the last time we did this, the last time we gathered for Easter Sunday worship. My wife and partner in ministry, Giovanna, and I had the distinct pleasure of baptizing our young son who was nine years old then. And he gave us the added joy of pulling one of, I think, the greatest preacher kid pranks ever. And, and you have to look for it. It's a little subtle, but you'll see it if you watch the video. Let's, let's look at the baptism of our son, Cohen Timothy Huffman, two years ago today. Cohen wrote, I believe in God, and I want to repent, and I want to be more like Jesus, and I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Cohen Timothy Huffman. All right. So all those promises y'all made to Jessica, if you'll make them again to Cohen Timothy, say amen. amen. Cohen Timothy Hoffman, I have the privilege of baptizing you today in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Good job, buddy. That's the, 
That's our first feet up baptism <laughs> in history. Uh, I love it. Our first feet, our only feet up baptism to date. And uh, leave it to my son to do that. And what a joyful time that was. But it seems like ages ago now. We've been through so much since then. So much. And I look back at all the different emergency situations we've lived through. And, you know, we've obviously had COVID and the shutdowns, but the economic stress there, some of you lost loved ones over the past couple of years. And for medical, you know, protocol reasons, you couldn't be there with them in the hospital as they were dying. Like, how awful, what an awful thing to live through. And, and it, just, it just wreaks havoc on our hearts to think back at all of the things we've been through. You know, it's uh, the politics, the election, uh, uh, last month or two months ago, the, the power crisis, and we all froze to death in Texas for the first time. And it was, it was a really scary time. And I look back on all these situations we've survived, and I realize they all share one single common denominator, fear. Fear was a factor in every single challenge we faced since we last gathered on Easter together. And fear can be a good thing in a very small dose. A little bit of fear can be a good and godly thing. It can make you wise and savvy. But it doesn't take much fear to cross the line from wise and savvy into just irrational, illogical, and really reacting to stimuli in ways that are counterintuitive and counterproductive, ways that don't make sense. And they've had mul multiple studies uh, where they looked at fear and its results, um, especially on our minds, on our hearts. One researcher said this. This is uh, something I read this week. Fear causes us to slam on the brakes instead of steering into the skid, immobilizes us when we have the greatest need for strength, causes insomnia, ulcers, and gives us dry mouth and jitters at the very moment when there is the greatest premium on clarity and eloquence. Fear is crippling to us when it takes over, when it governs us as it has over the past couple of years. We have to be able to be real about this. Fear has governed us. Look at what fear has done to us, separating us, isolating us, making us think maybe life is better without each other, making us think maybe getting together isn't worth it, making us think that isolation is okay. Listen, that's how you know fear has taken over. It's gone from being a healthy thing to, to being a governor of, over you when it drives you into isolation because our spiritual enemy is just like any predator. And any savvy predator wants to isolate his prey. And that's exactly what fear can do to us today when we let it take over. And so I want to talk today about fear and its effects on us and what Easter has to say about fear. So I'm going to read this passage. It's from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And I just invite you to follow along. Obviously, if, if you're a real Christian who brought your Bible to church, you can open that now. <laughs> yeah, you missed it, didn't you? Yeah. All right, so <laughs> there's always next Sunday, okay? All right, so you can follow along or, or on the screen. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running 
to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself. We've talked a lot about John's potential ego issues here. I don't know. I don't know why he called himself the one Jesus loved. I think it's just kind of his way of talking about himself in the the third person. And he said, and she said, this is Mary Magdalene, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So she is not sold on Easter yet, all right? She just knows the body's gone. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Who's they? I don't know. You ever been really afraid and just go, they're after us. And there's no like objective they. It's just a whatever they. That's that's where she's at. They took him. We don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. But a little caveat, parenthetical here, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. There's so much, so much to unpack in this passage. Um, we'll do our best with the time we have, but y'all know if you've been around the story for many Easter's past, you know one of my favorite details about Easter is John's absolute obsession with his own foot speed. <laughs> he really wants you guys to know he was super fast when he was young, all right? So he's like, both disciples took off running, but the one Jesus loved got there first, and, and then Peter came along after him, and then after Peter went in the tomb, the other one who got there first went in the tomb after. It's like, by the end of this passage, you're like, we get it, John. We get it. All right, you can bench press 300 pounds. All right, John. Like, we get it. He is obsessed with this, and, and you know, we, we, I guess it's fun to have fun with this, but it's also interesting to ask why we need to know this. And part of it might just be an old man reminiscing because by the time John wrote his gospel, he was really up in years. He was probably in his late 70s or early 80s by the time he wrote the gospel of John. His was the last gospel to be written by a couple of decades at least. And and so by this time he had been captured. He He was detained on the island of Patmos. But what you need to know about John is that by the time he went to the trouble of writing his gospel, putting pen to parchment, he had witnessed the death, the deaths of everyone he cared about. John was the only one of Jesus's apostles, the only one of the 12 who was not martyred for his faith. Judas notwithstanding, Judas took his own life, but Judas's replacement was martyred for his faith as were the other apostles. John had witnessed the martyrdom, the death of his older brother, James, who was also an apostle, who was the first of the 12 to be martyred for his faith by Herod Agrippa, who had James beheaded by the sword. John witnessed that, knew about that. And then he, one by one, saw his other cohorts, fellow disciples, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends and family picked off by the authorities, one at a time. John was the only one who escaped. And y'all, it took me 42 years of living on God's green earth to figure out 
that there could be possibly a correlation between the fact that John was the only one who got away and John's incredible foot speed. <laughs> so <laughs> it reminds me of that joke about the two guys that were on a hike and they ran into a grizzly bear. You remember this one? And, and, and one of them, they, they both freeze and one of them says, I think we should run for it. And the other one says, we'll never outrun this bear. And the, the first one says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> and, and, Maybe that was John. Maybe he's not bragging about his speed. Maybe he's confessing something. Like he, he's the only one that got away because he was faster than all the others. Even if that's the case, by this time, he is an old man. His speed is long gone. He is under captivity, facing martyrdom. And he still went to the trouble to write his gospel. The question remains, why? Why would John go to this trouble? Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels already existed. Why did he feel it was necessary to further upset the authorities, putting his life even more on the line by testifying to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Why? Because Easter is the antidote to fear. Easter is the antidote to fear. If you look throughout the gospel accounts of what happened between Jesus's arrest, when guys like Peter were denying that they even knew Jesus and they were running away through the time Jesus was killed and laid in the tomb, the disciples were gripped by fear. You can look at their reactions. And look, I know there's probably skeptics in the room going, well, you know, who knows what really happened? Listen, if the disciples were trying, who wrote these gospel accounts, were trying to make themselves and their story look good, they would not tell you that they all went running away like scared children when Jesus was put on the cross. That's exactly what happened. Their fear led them to, in, into seclusion, into the shadows. They were sequestered in silence, worried they would be found out. And we see this effect happening all the time on us today. Has this not been the effect of fear on our lives today? Has fear not driven us further away? Has fear not caused us to isolate, not just physically, but spiritually even, emotionally to isolate? Fear always does this. Fear makes your, your mind soft and your heart hard. A soft mind looks like this. It looks like anyone who just buys into any old conspiracy theory. And has our culture not been driven? So much of the narrative in our culture lately has been driven by one conspiracy theory after another. Have we not bought into just anything the news tells us? Regardless, left or right, pick your, pick your poison. Everyone's buying in to whatever the news is selling because our, our minds are soft softened by fear. And I've heard them all over the last couple of years. My heart has grieved when I've heard all of these different conspiracy theories being thrown around by people that I know know better. But this is what fear does. It makes us irrational. Did you guys know that one of our recent presidents was the Antichrist or, and or the Messiah? Depending on which one who you're talking to, and the current president is the opposite of what they said the other one is. And did you know that certain Democratic senators are secretly pedophile vampires? Did you know that, 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 that uh, vaccines are, are the mark of the beast? Oh my God, did you know 
that all these things were, were true, like all these conspiracy theories? Listen, these are the kinds of things that soft minds buy into when we lose the ability to, to discern, to be wise, to think with minds that are strong and firm, minds that are in search of the truth and not just the next conspiracy theory. But when we are wrapped up in fear, our minds are softened. And just like that, our, our hearts are hardened as well. You know, some, some of the, the pain and suffering we witness every day, I know we feel like we have no control over it. We look at the pain going on right now, the human suffering at our southern border, just hours from here, right? Children, unaccompanied minors being stacked up in, in insufficient, uh, you know, um, places, insufficient facilities, being stacked up. And, 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 you know, it's an awful human crisis. And I've heard just one too many of us who claim to follow Christ detach ourselves from what we should be feeling because our fear has hardened our hearts. Like, well, they shouldn't even be here. Not my problem. They should have had better parents or whatever. Like, it's not my problem. I'll wash my hands like Pontius Pilate. No. But that's what fear will do to you. It will harden your heart because you're afraid to feel. Because feeling makes you vulnerable. Love makes you vulnerable. And when you're afraid, vulnerability is the last thing you have on your mind. And so fear drives us into this place where our hearts are hard and our minds are soft. And a soft mind combined with a, soft, with a hard heart is antichrist. Minds that are tough, hearts that are soft. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of Christ. And we see this playing out in the story of Mary Magdalene, one of my favorite all-time figures in the Christian story. She is a saint. She's a hero of the Christian faith. We know her to be a woman of great courage, but there was a moment in time when her courage was lost. It was the moment after she thought somebody, they, took the body, and, and not only was Jesus, her, her friend, her Lord, dead, now he wouldn't even get a proper burial, which was very important to first century Jewish people. She was there to anoint his body for burial, and now she couldn't even give him that. And it broke her heart and wrecked her with fear and grief, and so she collapsed in the garden. In the very next passage of John's gospel, you can read it for yourself, she collapsed in the garden and wept. And in her fear, in that moment, her mind was so soft that she couldn't even conceive of what Jesus told her he was going to do before he died. She couldn't even think through that logically because fear had made her mind soft. And when Jesus, the risen Lord, approached her and stood right beside her, she couldn't even allow her heart to feel him because her heart was hardened by fear. And he spoke to her. She heard his voice and she still couldn't conceive of Jesus standing right beside her because that's how fear works on us. Not only did she not recognize him, Mary Magdalene stood up and shook him down. I know you took him. Where did you take my Lord? I know you saw who did it. You're not leaving here until you tell me who it was. Like she's shaking down Jesus. And then Jesus says one word, her name, Mary. And just like that, her name on the lips of her risen Lord was enough to dispel all of her fears and set her free from the hardening of her heart and the softening of her mind. Just like that, something snapped in Mary Magdalene and she went from being this shell of her former self, weeping, broken down in that garden, 
to being the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Instead of running away from it all, Mary Magdalene immediately ran toward the disciples where they were still hiding in fear, sequestered and secluded. And she said, I have seen the Lord. She, Mary Magdalene, was the first person, a woman, the first person in history to say that Christ had risen on Easter and his resurrection changed everything. And then, of course, in the months and years that followed, something dramatic, truly uh, inexplicable happened. Mary Magdalene's witness launched a, a movement around the risen Jesus that took the world by storm, but it was only because she chose Jesus over her fears. In fact, her fears met their match on Easter when her heart became soft and her mind became strong. A strong mind, a tough mind, and a soft heart. This is the way of Jesus. A tough mind that discerns truth from fiction and a soft heart that loves the way God loves. This is the way of Christ. And I can feel in the room right now, there's skeptics, as I said earlier, people who are here probably against your will. Again, thank you so much for, for humoring us and, and for doing, I know you're doing everything in your power right now not to roll your eyes in the back of your head when you hear a Christian pastor say, Christians are supposed to think with tough minds and be discerning and wise. Because in your experience, Christians are anything but. Some of the Christians you've met have had soft hearts, that's fine. But the idea that we should be discerning thinking people, to you, that is inconsistent because the event that we're here celebrating this morning seems illogical, unscientific, impossible. Men don't rise from the dead. Dead men don't walk out of their tombs. It doesn't happen. It's a non-starter for you because you're a logical, reasonable person, and I respect that, all right? I respect that. I've been there. Now, when I was, I was wanting everybody to know that I was smart, I, I wanted to not check my brain at the door. You know, I, I didn't walk away from Christianity. I just walked into this branch of Christianity known as like progressive Christianity, right? Which isn't really a political thing. It's more of a theological world. Uh, I walked into this progressive Christianity because in that little world, you could still hold on to the brand Christian. It was important to me because it was part of my upbringing and all that. But you didn't have to check your brain at the door. You could just explain away all the miraculous, unreasonable stuff that you were too smart to believe in. So during that time of my life, I would come to church on Sunday mornings and I would say things like, the resurrection didn't happen, but the resurrection always happens. Boom, mic drop in the room, right? Like some deep theoretical stuff that sounds a lot smarter than it really is, by the way. But what was meant by that is that the, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't a literal event in history. It was a spiritual event in society. And Jesus didn't really wake up from the dead, but his death woke an arising, an uprising of peasants and nobodies who banded together and fed the poor and, and did what was right until they took over the Roman Empire, the evil empire of Rome. And all of that was really, it struck a chord with me in that time. I was a part of a movement where, that, that said the resurrection happens when our government makes more just laws. The resurrection happens when there's more equity in the world. The resurrection happens every time women are believed. And there's some really noble ideas in that world that I was in. I'm not knocking it in, in its entirety. 
I, I, I think there were some good intentions there. But as I look back now, I can, I can perceive with, with a, I think, the tough mind Christ has given me now to discern. I, I, I can discern some logical inconsistencies that are so obvious to me now, but that I couldn't see then. I'll give you one as an example, all right? So to be a part of a community that on the one hand says we should believe all women, and on the other hand says the resurrection didn't really literally happen, is logically inconsistent because when we look at every biblical account of the resurrection and its witnesses, the first witnesses to the literal factual resurrection of Jesus were the who? The women. So do we believe women or not? Because every time someone said he's risen, the first ones to say it were the women. Every time. In fact, it's one of those things that doesn't really make sense if this were a legend or a myth or a story they made up to try and pull one on the rest of the world. You wouldn't put women as the primary witnesses. Not in those patriarchal days when women's testimonies weren't even allowed in court. But every time they told the story of the resurrection, the women were the first evangelists, the ones to proclaim first, preeminently, that Christ was indeed risen. So as I look back on my life, in that part of my life, I see that inconsistency now. And I see since then so many people I know and care about who have walked away from Christianity in search of a better social movement that, in fact, believes all women because you've had bad experiences in the church. And I understand there's bad dudes in church sometimes. But it sometimes eludes us the fact that the original OG believe women's social revolution is biblical Christianity. The women were believed. The women who were believed are the reason that we're here today. And so I thank God for Mary Magdalene and the men who believed her and the other women who proclaimed this resurrection as well. Tough minds, soft hearts. This is the way Christ. Now, if you're a skeptic and this just doesn't add up and that's not enough to convince you of anything, that's all right. The only reason I'm saying this, any of this, is to say you are welcome to explore the evidence for yourself. I encourage you to honestly examine the evidence for yourself. This, the, the, that's going to be part of tonight's message at our after party in Timber Grove, 6 p.m. It's going to be awesome outdoors, great time, and we're going to have different stuff happening there as well. So I hope you'll come, uh, c- come back for that. Not in what you're wearing now, change into what you've been wearing while you watch me online. All right. So <laughs> uh, just keep it casual is what I'm saying. But you're free, no matter where you are, to explore the evidence and just know that some of the smartest people who've ever lived have explored the evidence and found it sufficient to support faith in the risen Jesus. And others have explored the evidence and, and walked away, and that's fine. All I'm saying is, listen, you can explore the evidence and, and make Jesus the Lord of your life, or you can explore the evidence and walk away from Jesus altogether. I'm just encouraging you, begging you, actually, to not do what I did in that season of my life and make Jesus your pet. He doesn't fit in that category. Jesus is not your side piece or your co-pilot. He's either God who rose from the grave or he's not. And you can choose to believe the women who, pro, who, who proclaim him risen or call them frauds and, and liars who made up a myth. 
But please don't condescend them by boiling down the fact they reported into some kind of a metaphor, because no metaphor could account for the kind of uprising we saw from Mary Magdalene and the other women and John and Peter and the others, people who were willing to put their very lives on the line to proclaim Jesus. And one by one, they were picked off by the authorities, but that didn't stop the ones who remained from proclaiming the risen Jesus. And here's the truth of the matter that I think many of us are too afraid to reckon with. The fact is, most of us deep down have a sneaking suspicion that it's real. All of it. Easter is real. The tomb must be empty. Sure, no man has the power to return from the grave, but maybe God does. That's really the only explanation that makes sense of things, that makes sense of 2,000 years of a Christian movement that has become multicultural in every language and that has led to right now in the middle of Rome, pilgrims, thousands of pilgrims from all over the world gather like they do every Easter, not to lift high the name of Caesar, but to lift up the name of Jesus, the one Caesar put on a cross like a common criminal, is lifted up now, not in Caesar's square, but in St. Peter's square. How else do we explain such a phenomenon than to consider at least that something supernatural took place that day, something that shook these frightened disciples free from their fear? And I would just ask you to consider, if you're a skeptic, the the possibility at least that it's real. Because if it's real, trust me when I tell you that it's good news. And I know it's scary to think of it all being real because suddenly there's a God who sees our every move, but this is not a God who stands in judgment over you. This is a God who came alongside you and took a punishment, took a death in your place so that you wouldn't have to fear anything. In fact, your worst fears meet their match in Jesus. Think right now about the things you're most afraid of. Think with me honestly about the things you've been most afraid of over the past couple of years. What scares you the most? Something happening to your kids. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you're worried about not seeing them again or or you lost someone in the hospital and they died alone and you're worried about how that felt to them and, and you weren't there for them and that wrecks you and it frightens you. Maybe death itself frightens you. I get that. I'm scared of death. I've been scared of death my whole life. This past week, my grandmother, my, my dad's mom passed away. We laid her to rest on Thursday morning this past week, Maundy Thursday, Holy Week Thursday. And I did the, the eulogy at her funeral, one of the hardest things I've done in my life. But, but to hear the stories of those who were there with her when she, when she passed, listen, this woman knew she was dying. And you know what she did in her final days? She sang in the garden. I come to the garden alone. Amazing grace. She knew what was coming, y'all, and she sang her way to it. That's the difference the resurrection makes. Even your worst and darkest fears meet their match, and they are neutralized in light of the risen Christ. And in the same way, all your highest hopes, all the things you've longed for and craved, the things you feared missing out on in this life, love and romance, being unconditionally wanted, family, all of those desires have a name. Their name is Jesus, and he will fulfill them, not just in this life, but for eternity. 
Your worst fears have met their match. Your biggest dreams have yet to come if the resurrection is true. This is why the women proclaimed it, even though their lives were on the line. This is why the men who came alongside them kept telling the stories of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection again and again at risk of death. Because if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. There's nothing to fear. And so today we, 2021, in Houston, Texas, gather together to join the chorus of every generation of Christians ever since Mary Magdalene said, I have seen the Lord. We say Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, take our fears. Take our anxieties. Take our shame. Take our fear of being loved. Our fear of intimacy with you. Take it all. Melt it away, Lord. We pray that you would take our minds that have been made soft by fear and make them strong again. Take our hearts that have been hardened by fear and break them and make them hearts of flesh again. We know that this world is broken and nothing should surprise us when we look around and see the brokenness come to the surface. Lord, nothing should catch us off guard. This is how evil works. This is how fear works. But Lord, we know you're calling us out to a new life, one in which our minds are strong and our hearts are soft, and not the other way around. Liberate us, free us from our fears, and set us free to proclaim like Mary Magdalene, that we have seen the Lord, and he is risen. In Jesus' name, amen.